we're in our series on called Anxious for Nothing. And we're, we've touched on a, a number of reasons, a number of areas of life where we get anxious, where we deal with that, that cycle of anxiety that, that we just put it off and it gets worse and then <clears throat> it comes back even stronger. And, and, and we're learning how to replace that with the, the cycle of peace that God reveals to us in his word. So we've been looking at Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> That's where we're looking today as well as a couple of other passages that talk about it. And you know, the holidays are coming up. I, we were talking earlier about different plans that people have for Thanksgiving, and then right on the heels of that, it's Christmas season, and you know, um, with the holidays coming, you might be spending a lot of time with people. I know, I know, that's what I'm getting at, right? May, this week, certainly in the weeks to come after that, and that's why in our anxiety series, we want to specifically deal with this issue. When people make you anxious. Now, this is huge for a lot of people. Perhaps there's some drama that surfaces, especially during the holidays. It's great to see your family and so forth and all the rest, but you know, sometimes sparks can fly. And we're going like, hmm, my kids, they don't really necessarily, my adult grown kids don't necessarily get along with each other, you know, all the time in every way. And they were going to be sitting around the table maybe together. Um, who's going to stick their foot in their mouth? You know, who's going to raise the awkward subject that nobody wants to talk about in the family life, you know? So Sally and I, we have three nieces and nephews that live in one city and across the other side of the country, and they used to be really, really close to each other, but something happened that tore the family apart and drove them apart from each other. Um, and so we feel like, it, you know, there's no, we can't visit that that city. We've been there, we've visited with them, and now we feel like we can't go there because we're going to get dragged into the middle of this huge blow-up, and that's just too stressful. There's too much anxiety that would go with that, thinking about that. So what are, what are your relational anxieties that are coming up this season? And I know you've already, you've already identified what those areas are, those people that you're going to have to be with and, or, or those issues that are going to, going to come to the surface. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, it, it, in a sense, it's really the anxiety chapter of the New Testament. And the most famous verses, we started out in the series with verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but, you know, it says, uh, make, take everything to prayer. And, and so, and we saw there that God revealed, or Paul reveals this secret of how to break the anxiety cycle with what we're, we call the peace cycle, where as you pray about and give thanks to God, let him know your needs, then we see the, the promise was the peace of Christ that, that, that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and your mind. And then we looked at what happens, you know, um, when you can't be in control of everything and that anxiety that that creates and how to have joy in that situation. Then last week we talked about verse 8 where how do you overcome that anxious mind that won't, just, that won't stop spinning? It just goes and goes and goes. And, and, uh, and we learned about fixing our thoughts on, on better things. And today, we're going to jump up into the beginning of the chapter to put this into context, to look at a verse, a couple of verses that are, that are kind of obscure, but we're going to try to make some sense out of them. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, Now I appeal to you, Odia, and to Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. 
So he's addressing really what's a common problem in a lot of families, a common problem in many churches as well. It's relationship conflicts. And we're going to apply what we've been learning. We're going to apply this overall study of anxiety to these relational conflicts and try to understand how to handle relational anxiety. So he had these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and they had some kind of disagreement. Now, they'd been partners. They'd been working together with each other and with him in the gospel, in the real, in the things that matter. And yet they had this serious disagreement. We don't know what it was. There's nothing in the context that tells us what the nature of that disagreement was. But it was a big enough deal that Paul's willing to call it out in front of the whole church in this letter that was, that was written to, to the whole assembly. And he's going to call them out and their problem out in public. And so that's, that's kind of what we're going to play off of today is verses 2 and 3 and try to figure that out for ourselves. Now, I, I want to begin by just giving you an overview of five kinds of relational problems that we're going to try to link this to the anxiety series. So first of all is when you're walking on eggshells. That's when somebody is so sensitive and so potentially defensive that you can't ever bring up an issue. Because if you do, you know, it's, you're going to pay for it. And so you have to walk around on eggshells all the time so that they don't blow up, they don't shut down. That creates anxiety. You have to live in a situation like that. That's one kind of relational problem that's common among so many of us. Another one is we call it the elephant in the room, right? Where there's an issue or an argument or something that just goes unresolved and everybody just pretends that it's not there. Everybody pretends that it's not really an issue when everybody really knows better, and when we all agree together, kind of tacitly agree together not to ever talk about that, that creates anxiety. Or how how about the internal time bomb, where another person knows how to push your buttons, and you just take it, and you take it, and you take it, until you can't take it anymore, then you react. Boom! Right? And then there's a big, big blow-up about it. Right? That's stressful. Or, or what we're calling triangulation. This is a common thing. I see people just all the time where, where you're, you're in a conflict with somebody and one or both of the people in the conflict are, are go to try to pull a third person in. Maybe, you know, so you go to that person and you start telling them your side of the story. And, and you want to get them to sympathize with you and to see it your way and to, to, to vilify the other person, whatever. The more people that get involved in the conflict, then the more anxiety then they gets raised. The room gets full of it, right? And then the fifth one is finger pointing, where you feel like the problem is, is 99% their problem and only maybe 1% my problem, if that. And, and so you can see where some of these things are going to create anxiety in our relationships. Well, today, some of you... I don't know who, but I know in a group this size and a a group of ordinary human beings, pretty sure that probably some of you have a disagreement with another Christian that you have not resolved. Maybe it's somebody else here at West Haven campus or at another Alpine campus, and that's why you're at West Haven campus and not at XYZ campus, right? Or maybe um, with somebody from another church in the community, and you're like Euodia and Syntyche today, where you're not really willing to settle the conflict. You're not really willing to get re- uh, reconciled about it. 
If that's where you're at, I, I can't promise you that today's sermon is going to be particularly comforting for you. It might be very applicable, practical, but see, what's at stake is whenever we're living with unresolved conflict, like Euodia and Syntyche, whenever we can't or we won't settle the matter, then it just raises the level of stress. It creates anxiety, not just for the two people in the conflict, but, but for all the people around them as well who are affected by that conflict. And so today... We're going to look at the most effective way to reduce anxiety from a conflict situation, to reduce relational anxiety. Now, each of those five approaches that I just outlined around that circle, that, that star, each one of those is a strategy for reducing relational anxiety by ignoring it, by dragging other people into it. In other words, each of them is a faulty strategy at best that never actually reduces the stress, but only makes it worse in the long run. There's really, I want, I want you to get the idea today, there's really only one thing that can cut through anxiety. It's what the Bible calls us to do. It, it's what Paul calls these feuding people in the Philippian church to do, and that is to settle the disagreement. And today we're going to look at four biblical ways to accomplish that. Okay, so number one, commit yourself to being a peacemaker. This is one of the most central enduring values of the whole Bible. It's, it comes up in the New Testament. It's so hard, at the heart of what the New Testament teaches about relationships. And we see it in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Another translation says, as far as it depends on you... Live at peace with everyone. Because, you know, realize that, not, that I, I can't control the other person. I can't control their response, but there's a certain thing that I can control. So as far as it depends on me, do all that I can to live at peace with everyone. That's a, a fundamental commitment that we have to make, that we have to live with. Because in the New Testament church, relationships mattered. Reconciliation mattered. It matters in the scripture. Why is that? Why is it so important? Because it's rooted in the core message of the gospel itself. It's rooted in who Jesus is and why he came and what he accomplished when he did come. Because through Jesus, God reconciled humanity to himself. So reconciliation becomes a big deal. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that by reconciling us to him, himself, through the cross, that at the same time that he reconciled humanity to each other. So there's a vertical, and there's also a horizontal dimension of that as well. And so in the church, in the first century, you have the, you have the Jewish people and you have the Gentile people. That's everybody who's not a Jew. And they wanted to have nothing to do with each other. But... Jews started coming to faith in Jesus. Gentiles started to, coming faith, to come to faith in Jesus. And so now the church has to figure out how these two groups get together. And it presents this idea, this model that Jewish and Gentile believers are going to tear down cultural and social barriers and become a united people before the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. That's why reconciliation is so important. And it's likely what Paul was thinking when he added this note to Euodia and Syntyche. Now, to connect it to another part of Philippians chapter 2, let's see what he says a couple of chapters earlier. This is on his mind as he's writing this letter to them. So in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? 
Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together in one mind and one purpose. And so what he does here in these verses, he's asking three rhetorical questions. And in each of those questions, it expects the answer to be yes. So he's saying essentially, yes, we do have encouragement from being united with Christ. Yes, we do have fellowship with each other and so forth. And he says then, okay, if that's true, which it is, then what follows automatically is these three things. He says then you'll agree wholeheartedly with each other. Then you'll love each other. Then you'll work together with one mind and one purpose. And that's why it mattered that Euodia and Syntyche would bury the hatchet so that they'd be consistent in their relationship with Jesus. They'd be consistent with what Jesus did between us and God and what Jesus did among us as well. And so in our culture, we, what we see is that many people, it's very common just to, um, you know, it's easier to bail on a relationship than to solve the disagreement, right? That's why ghosting has become a thing, Right? In the last few years, right, you hear about it all the time, you just, like, you just stopped showing up in the relationship. Why? Because it got awkward, it got weird or something. So instead of working it out, talking about it, you just stopped showing up. You stopped replying to text messages and so forth. Well, here's what Paul says to these two women. Again, let me read this again. Now, I appeal to Yodi and to Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. So why is it imperative to not quit? Why is it imperative among Christians especially to settle that? Because he says you both belong to the Lord. In other words, you're bonded together in this common shared faith, this common shared identity. And so whatever your issue is, whatever it is you disagree about, whatever that person did to you, that issue, that problem is simply not as important as the identity that you share in Christ. Your common faith, your your shared allegiance to Jesus is, is more important than anything that could come between us as Christians. So think about it this way. You know what? If you're going to be together with that person in heaven, then may, maybe you should make every effort to live together with that person here on this earth. Like imagine getting to heaven and going, oh, oops. Like, oh, oh, we never figured out. We never talked about that, you know. Can you imagine what that would be like in heaven? It just seems so incongruous. Well, it should seem incongruous to us in the body of Christ today, in this world as well. Can I go on a little bit of a rant with you guys? Because this, this issue is totally one of my biggest pet peeves. And after years of years of ministry, one of my biggest disappointments, I guess you might say, is when Christians in a church disagree and their strategy for dealing with that is just to leave just to leave the church and go find some other church down the street without ever working on it, without ever trying to make it reconcile, to try to reconcile, just disappear. Now, honestly, I'm thankful that we can choose whatever church we want to go to. I'm thankful we don't have to go to the church that's closest to us in our neighborhood if we don't want to. And there are times when it's okay to change churches. I would change churches over a doctrinal issues. I would change churches if, if the church no longer, if the church departed from its mission to make disciples. I might change churches if, you know, my kids were going to another church and I wanted to hang out with my family or if I moved, if I moved across town, I might change churches then. But in my experience, people change churches way, way too often for the simple reason that they're not willing to try to get along. 
I've heard all the excuses, you know, people say, oh, that relationship just stresses me out. That person offended me. Oh, we don't see eye to eye politically. Oh, we got in a fight. Gosh, I remember when I was a brand new pastor years ago, I'd only been, I'd just been out of seminary for a couple of months, and we were just, we were starting this new church in Ogden, Utah, and just getting, getting going, we had like, we had like 15 or 20 people. And even though we only had 20 people in the church, we had a Euodia and a Syntyche. Two women got in a big conflict over really nothing. It was really nothing. One woman went out and, and she bought. So we're just starting. We're meeting in a place that you'd never heard of. And no, but neither did anybody else at that time, you know. So we're meeting in this little rental place. We're trying to make it nice. This woman went out and bought decorations for the communion table that we had in front of the pulpit, you know. Well, she didn't ask anybody. She just did it. Well, bless her heart, you know. But another woman, who's kind of the queen bee, didn't like that somebody else had done that and didn't like that somebody else did it without asking permission to do it. And so, really, it's about putting a cross and candles on the community. That's all it was about. And these two people blew up that angry exchange over the telephone. I tried my best with the, with the limited amount of experience I had in ministry, I tried my best to try to, to bring reconciliation, but one couple left the church, and the other couple was happy to see them go. See, there's something wrong with that, right? Maybe some of you, instead of settling your disagreement, you disappeared and showed up at another church. And then you hope you don't see the people from that old church, you know, when you're walking to a coffee shop or you go into Home Depot, you hope that you don't see the pastor that you, you know, like I said, then you're going to have to duck behind the appliances until the coast is clear, right? Can we just say no to that? Can we just be obedient to Jesus on this thing? Can we start showing some spiritual and relational maturity and actually commit ourselves to being peacemakers? I remember back in the day when I was um, just pastoring one particular campus, whenever somebody came to visit from another church, I always had two questions for them. Now, question number one is, did you talk to your pastor about why you stopped going there and why you're looking around right now? Have you talked to your pastor about it? And number two, are there relationships that you left behind that you need to make right before you come here or wherever that you need to make right? Because this is the first step that Paul's talking to us about in relational anxiety is this commitment to being peacemakers. We're willing to take steps to make the conflict right and not just flee, okay? So that's number one. The other, the other points are, are shorter. Let's talk about how to, how to put that into practice. And the second thing, it, it really helps if you can put yourself in their shoes. Conflict is so much easier to resolve when you find a way to see the other person's perspective, right? To get in touch with the needs and the fears and the experience that are driving them because it gets a lot harder to just be black and white about something. It gets a lot easier to give and take if you can begin to understand what is driving them and, and, and where they're at in their experience. Put yourself in their shoes. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, oops, that was already up there. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is right after what we read earlier. He said, if there's any encouragement in being united with Christ, any fellowship, then make my joy complete. He says it. And then he goes on to say, look out for others' interests along with yourself, your own. Because you know what comes naturally to us. Nobody has to coach us or tell us to look out for our own interests. 
That's easy. That's natural. He doesn't say that's wrong or bad. He says, but you also need to take into account the other person as well. You know, because we're always going to think about conflict from our own perspective first. That's natural. And then the other person is going to be thinking about the conflict from their perspective too. What if we decided to look out for each other's interests as well as our own? What if we decided to give others the same benefit of the doubt that we often give ourselves? It can happen when we stop fixating on what they did wrong and look in the mirror. That's part of this. This is look in the mirror. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the paths of everlasting life. This is a prayer of great self-awareness and humility because when I'm open to what God wants to say to me, what God wants to reveal in me, then it's easier to put myself in the other person's shoes and to extend grace to them. Okay. Third thing. This is really, some of this is relationship 101, right? Conflict 101. This one also, where you really make a commitment to talk to the other person and not just talk about them. You know, in conflict, it's so much easier to talk about the other person. I'm worked up inside. I got to vent to somebody, you know, and so maybe maybe being my wife, maybe maybe my friend or somebody at work, and I got I feel I got to vent. And at Christians, we have great ways to like pretend that that's pious. We'll like raise a prayer request or ask for advice, you know, about the situation. When we really what we just need to do is go talk to that person. But you know what, what happens is we want to vindicate our own point of view. We want people to be on our side. We want people to sympathize with us. But when we end up gossiping about the situation, that never contributes anything positive to the relationship. It only poisons the, the relationship with other people. And it makes it so much harder to be reconciled. And that person hears you were talking about them. Then, then they become even more defensive and the walls go up even more. And it's harder and harder to be, to be reconciled. Now, look, I know that going to talk to that person is challenging. Look, my personality is I just want to avoid conflicts. And that conversation is going to be awkward. It's going to be painful. It might be the hardest thing you've done. But biblically, it's not an option. Jesus told us to do it. He told us in no uncertain terms. So it's not a matter of preference. It's not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where he tells us that in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. So instead of gossiping about it or bringing third parties, triangulating people in, he says, Jesus says, look, go out, reach out, make an attempt to make peace with that person. And Jesus goes on and and he says, look, if you can't get reconciled, the next verse, if you can't get reconciled, then, then you want to bring that uh, a trusted third party in on that. And so they can, not to gossip, but, but to help listen to both parties and to help that you figure out how you can get reconciled with them. Now, now I know what you're thinking, right? Because this is what I'm thinking. You're thinking like, wait, wait, this is supposed to be about reducing relational anxiety. And nothing makes my anxiety spike through the roof except to the extent of having to go and have that difficult conversation with that person. So, so how does that work? Well, you know what I've discovered over the years, maybe you have as well, 
is that when we tackle that tough conflict, it really has the potential to raise that relationship to a whole new level. When you go through it, when you work it through, that it can catapult that relationship to greater trust, greater intimacy, greater connection that you ever had with that person before. Partly because you proved that you value them enough to do the hard thing. You proved it to yourself, you proved it to them, that you value them enough to do the hard thing, then when you work it out, you have a stronger foundation than ever before. So you're trading short-term anxiety for richer and deeper peace in the long run. Because what we're saying here, right, is that relationship is more important than being right. So you might need to compromise. You might need to forgive, even if they don't ever ask you to forgive. You might need to take more responsibility for the problem than you feel like you deserve to take. But people are worth it. Relationships are worth it. So in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what's wrong, hold tightly to what's good, love each other with genuine affection, take delight in honoring each other. In other words, we could talk all day about loving other Christians, but we're just pretending if we're not willing to do the hard thing. And honoring that other person in a conflict means talking to them, not just talking about them, okay? So, one last thing that's going to help us in this area. The fourth way to settle the difference is sometimes you just need to be ready to absorb the offense. See, when you go and seek reconciliation with that other person, that might open a door to a miracle, and you, you both hear each other's side, and you both put each, on each other's shoes, and, and you apologize, and, and hugs are exchanged all around, and the disagreement is settled, and the relationship grows. But sometimes that doesn't happen. If I come to you and I'm not humble or if I'm too forceful, or if I've got an agenda uh, for you, or I'm, I'm not willing to admit my part of the problem, then I'm just throwing gas on the flames. Or if I come to you, even in the right spirit, and you're not receptive, and you become hard-hearted, and you're determined to win the conflict, then, then you're throwing gas on the flames. But when the conflict continues and the hurt feelings remain, then what do we do? Well, you've done your part to make peace. Like we said in Romans chapter 12, as far as it depends on you, you've done your part to make peace, but the dispute isn't solved, then you only have one option left, and that is I, ha I might have to absorb the offense. In other words, I, I have put that conflict in the hands of God. God is the one who judges all things and all people justly and perfectly. He's the one who sees the whole bigger picture that I don't see. In other words, I'm saying sometimes I just have to let it go. And trust God with that issue and trust God with that person. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He absorbed our offenses against God. He absorbed the wrath that we deserved from God for our sin. And he took it upon himself. So that's why Philippians chapter 2, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus gave up his divine rights as God to enter our world as one of us, as a human being. He chose humility. He chose sacrifice. And he obeyed God even at the price of humiliation and death. Why? 
because he valued us, because he saw this bigger picture where that's what it took for us to be reconciled to God. That's what it took, so that's what he did. Paul says you need to have that same attitude in yourself, Christian. That's why we can choose to forgive even when the other person won't admit they're wrong. That's why we can choose to absorb the hurt and the wrong even when the other person refuses to be reconciled. So back to Romans chapter 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Boy, that goes against the grain. I don't want to bless people who cause trouble for me. I don't want to even ask God to bless them. I want God to discipline them, to set them straight. This way, this requires such a divine work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's something that we don't do ourselves. It doesn't come naturally to us. But it's what the only, only the Holy Spirit can do this in us as we surrender to Him and as we take those specific steps of obedience. So, Here's where we've been. It starts with a commitment to be a peacemaker where you're willing to go and seek reconciliation and to seek to settle the disagreement. Then you, you put yourself in the other people's shoes and you consider their interests, not just your own. Where you resolve to talk to the person and not just about them and to take those difficult steps to go and talk to them even though the conversation is awkward and painful. And then you have to be willing, if necessary, to absorb the offense just like Jesus did for us. It boils down, really, biblically, it boils down to one thing. It boils down to love. We're called to love each other in the family of Jesus. And so we see in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is how you know your relationship with Jesus is real and not just talk. Because you love God's people in action. And you do what demonstrates that love. So, you know, here you are. Relationships, our relationships are tested all the time, aren't they? I mean, being human, it's kind of a minefield out there sometimes with relationships. But here comes the holidays then and add that extra layer, that extra dimension. That's why we wanted to talk about this topic right now, tonight, today. What's going to reduce your anxiety in relationships over the holidays? It's when we love each other enough to settle our disagreements. Let's pray.